are no uh, declared potential conflicts of interest with today's presentation. And our speaker today will be introduced to us by Lisa Adams. Dr. Adams is our uh, Associate Dean for uh, Global Health. She is also the director of the Dartmouth Center for Health, Center Equity. For Health Equity, and she also, and she also works on the uh, issues of global affairs for the provost office at Dartmouth. And in addition to that, she's an associate professor of medicine in the infectious disease international health section. Lisa, come tell us about today's speaker. Thank you, Rich. Good morning, everyone. And good morning to those who are joining remotely. I'm so pleased to introduce Michael Mina to you today, who will be delivering his medical grand rounds on measles, immune amnesia, and why measles is the master in uh, childhood infection. Michael is an assistant professor in the departments of epidemiology and of immunology and infectious diseases at the Harvard School of Public Health, and he's a clinical pathologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Michael's also a Dartmouth College alum, we all come back, um, having earned his bachelor's degree in engineering and public health here. He went on to complete his MD and PhD degrees in the NIH Medical Scientist Training Program at Emory University and subsequently conducted postdoctoral work at both Princeton University and Harvard Medical School. He completed his medical residency in pathology at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Now, Michael's research focuses on a critical area in infectious disease immunology namely the development of novel high-throughput technologies to advance infectious disease diagnostics and epidemiological surveillance, and to better understand the interactions between pathogen exposures and immunity. His important work has uncovered prolonged effects of measles infection that deplete previously acquired immunity and has linked measles vaccines to significant reductions in mortality globally. Another major interest of his lab is the development of molecular and mathematical tools to understand the landscape of infectious diseases and the development of immunity across ages and across the world. Recently, for obvious reasons, his research has taken a turn towards understanding the epidemiology and immunology related to the novel coronavirus, COVID-19. Now, Michael has been the recipient of numerous awards for his research in public health work including being named one of eight global progress makers by The Economist. He received the Top Scientific Research Award for Junior Investigators from the U.S. Academy of Clinical and Laboratory Physicians and Scientists, and most recently was an awarded an NIH Director's Early Independence Award. Now, if that wasn't enough for someone who graduated from college just 13 years ago, I was also rather impressed to learn that Michael is an ordained Buddhist monk, has taught science alongside the Dalai Lama in India, and at one time was ranked third in the country in junior lightweight rowing. So Michael is obviously a man of many talents. But today we'll be hearing about his groundbreaking research that was recently published in Science and covered in the New York Times and other major media outlets on the development of this phenomenon of immune amnesia, the immune amnesia that results from measles disease but not vaccination. His findings are particularly timely, given the resurgence of measles in the U.S. and the growing anti-vaccination movement. So, Michael, we look forward to hearing what you have to say today. Thank you. Working? Yes. Can you all hear me? Good? Okay. Well, thank you very much for that introduction. 
really went into detail. <laughs> um, so it's, it's really an honor to be here. The last time I was standing, well, I've never been in this particular room, but in this hospital I was applying for MD-PhD programs. And uh, so it's nice to, to come back and, and be here now. So I'm going to be talking about measles and immunological amnesia, and I'll explain what that is. Um, and really this talk is in two parts. The first talk, the first part will be discussing some of the ecological uh, population-based findings that led to some of the more recent immunological findings, and which will be the second part. So to give a little bit of motivation about what I'm talking about, um, I think that this particular graph is really, the, the one on the left here, is, is one of the more striking graphs. It's very, very simple. Um, but this was a, a study in Bangladesh in the, in the early 90s, looking at the introduction of measles vaccination using a block randomized control study. Um, but essentially, they were able to give measles vaccination to half of the group of children, and, and these are thousands and thousands of children, um, and not give vaccination to another half today. That would probably not be ethical, um, although there is oddly a randomized control trial going on that is doing that. Not that I'm running, and I don't feel good about it. Um, but uh, uh, essentially what you saw in this, in this study, and this has been repeated multiple times, I'll just mention that graph in a moment, is that after the introduction of the measles vaccine in this population, the overall childhood mortality, not due to measles infections, but due to sort of a global uh, all-cause mortality in these kids, was reduced. And about four years after the kids had received a vaccine, their, their risk of mortality was about 40% lower than children who uh, had not received the vaccine. And the WHO, so there's been, this isn't the only study that's shown this. There's actually been quite a few studies, more or less everywhere where the vaccine has been introduced, particularly in low-income and low-resource settings. We've seen really large reductions in all-cause childhood mortality. The WHO collect, put together a SAGE group, a strategic advisory group of experts, to look at this particular question and ask, does the epidemiological data really suggest that this is a true phenomenon, or is all this kind of driven by biased uh, observations? And ultimately, they, they, this is just a forest plot looking at the beneficial effect of, of measles vaccination on overall childhood mortality in a number of different studies. And it's just to show that almost all these dots are falling on the left, which is, in this case, beneficial to reduce all-cause mortality. There was one study in Haiti that was the most extreme example I could see where apparently mortality was reduced 90% after the vaccine was introduced in that population. So these are really striking findings, considering we don't believe that measles alone was really driving 40 or 50% of all-cause childhood mortality in the population. Um, so there's a couple different hypotheses. Uh, the first one, and this has been sort of floating around in, in various literature for a while, is that maybe there's some benefit of actually getting the vaccine to kids that, that extends beyond just measles, where just the, the jab of the vaccine is somehow eliciting a strong innate immune response that's maybe reprogramming monocytes or macrophage to actually somehow protect against other infectious diseases for a number of years. As an immunologist, I think that it's, it's a little bit, I, I would say the science isn't there to really describe how that could happen um, and how it could really persist for a long period of time, although I wouldn't ever discount the idea that it, it could very well be persisting where you get some sort of boost to immunity for a shorter duration of time. But the, the questions of, that really come out of that literature drove, drove us to come up with a different idea or a different hypothesis. And what if measles was actually driving mortality in a way that we didn't understand or didn't appreciate before, and that after a child gets measles, it actually does some sort of long-term damage to the immune response that 
goes more or less under the radar. And because measles was an infection that was affecting 100% of children, more or less, before the vaccine was introduced, this would ultimately just present itself at the population level as, as a given baseline of mortality. But when you then reduce the amount of measles through vaccination, that would, that would show up as a global reduction in all-cause mortality if something like this, if there was some sort of long-term derangement to the immune response that was actually occurring. And, uh, and so we wanted to essentially ask, is it possible that the introduction of the vaccine by blocking measles would then block any long-term effects and, and present itself as a reduction in all-cause mortality? Um, and there is actually a signal of that. If we look at this graph that I showed a moment ago, this, if you can't see it, this goes out to 42 months post-vaccination. One of the interesting things in this graph is right after the vaccine is introduced into these children, you see an immediate benefit in terms of reduced mortality. So that could be because of, of getting rid of measles, but this could also be that direct effect I was mentioning, this sort of short-term stimulation of immunity that would potentially protect you from other things. But then the, the more interesting part, for me anyway, is that you really see these two curves diverge about 15 months after these kids were given vaccination. So that's not really commensurate with a direct effect. That would be something else. And what happens at 15 months after vaccination, that's the average age that these kids were getting measles in the population prior to the introduction of the vaccine. So that could be what's really driving this divergence in these two plots 15 months later. So if measles, uh, if measles actually increases risk of mortality, given that this was a, an infection that was infecting nearly 100% of children, then there should be some signature, some signal of that that we can pull out of the population level data. So for example, you should see that after a measles epidemic occurs in a population, you'd see increased mortality over a duration of time after that epidemic occurred. And if that's the case, then we should be able to, if this effect is real, one of the ways we can, we can use time series data and, and actually start to get a causal inference and causal pathways by trying to understand, um, can, we, can we essentially predict all-cause mortality from year to year using the incidence data that's coming from measles? And the reason we can make causal inference is, without going into detail, we know all about why measles epidemics occur. So we know that the, that the directionality would be in one direction but not the other. And that's that measles epidemics occur because of birth rates uh, increasing pools of susceptibles and then burning through them with an outbreak. And then you get, you have to wait a couple of years until you get enough susceptibles born into the population again. So we can really well predict when a measles epidemic is going to happen. So if we can then go on to say that we can predict all-cause mortality based on the measles incidence data alone, that really gets us on the, far along the pathway of saying measles might truly be causing excess mortality from other infections. So we wanted to look at this, and, and this is data now that came, uh, that we published a, a number of years ago uh, in 2015, but this is down here in this little plot, this is just what measles epidemics look like in, in England and Wales uh, from the 40s through the 90s, and you can see the measles vaccine was introduced, and you see these nice biennial peaks of measles really get diminished here, and the vaccine works. And so what I'm showing here is I'm just taking this, this data here, and I'm just um, aggregating each year into individual points. And so we see that there's an outbreak, and then you have a lull, another outbreak, and a lull, and so on and so forth until the vaccine's introduced here. And then in the black curve, what I'm showing is the all-cause mortality due to non-measles infectious disease deaths. So all-cause infectious disease mortality, removing measles from, from the pile. And if we just, so this is against time, if instead we take these two, these two um, lines and we plot them against each other, just focus on this blue curve here, 
which is just the best fit line for these points, you end up seeing uh, measles incidence along the, um, the x-axis is plotted against non-measles mortality, and there's some, some correlation, but it's not a particularly striking correlation. Uh, and so at the very least, we, we said, well, at least this suggests that when there's extra, when there's a lot of measles in the population that year, you'll see extra mortality to some extent. But it wasn't a particularly convincing graph. So we wanted to then go a step further and say, what if it's not the amount of measles that happens in this year predicting the amount of mortality that's going to happen in this year? But if measles actually is more like a, sh a shorter chronic disease, so instead of lasting for a few weeks, it maybe lasts for a few years, maybe to actually predict the amount of mortality that might be in the population today, we have to look at how many measles cases occurred today, last year, and the year before, for example. So we start to aggregate the numbers of measles cases and ask, if we start aggregating those cases, is there a duration over which we can aggregate cases where it really does become predictive of all-cause mortality. And that could essentially reflect the average duration that these immunological effects might last. So I'm going to play a video. And as this video moves forward, you're going the, essentially the, what, what you'll see is this little dot here. These, these two dots here will move. And this axis is the duration that we start to assume that the effects of measles are lasting for. And this is just showing the correlation. So I'm already giving away what the video is going to show. Um, but essentially here, we see the scatter plot, which really doesn't look particularly nice. If you are wondering, these are the post, these are the, the pre-vaccine era data best fit line. And this is the post-vaccine era best fit line. And this is all the data. Um, and, uh, and so when I play this, essentially, we're going to start aggregating the data for any one of those dots. We're going to start Bring, uh, increasing the amount of measles incidence to sort of reflect uh, an increased all of the cases that came before over this duration of time. It should make more sense once I play it. Okay, so I'm going to stop it there. So for anyone who works in public health epidemiology of any sort, this is really a very strong Fit. So this is essentially what we know, and I already said that measles incidence, we know exactly when measles is going to happen. We know that it's birth rates. We can actually project and predict forward exactly how big the measles outbreaks themselves are going to be. So we know that it's not all-cause mortality that's dry, like there's, that the pathway is really going in, in one direction. And so we can say, essentially based on this curve, with just knowing the cumulative incidence of measles collected over 27 months of time on average here, we can more or less predict all of the interannual fluctuations that are going to happen, all of the variation, or 90-plus percent of the variation, in all-cause mortality can be explained by measles incidence alone, which is really a striking number. And so I'm going to play this again. And what I want you to look at this time is this curve here. And so what I'm doing here is I'm just, I'm just transforming this relationship here to essentially say, okay, this is the measles incidence data each point that's in the blue line is really reflecting how well this data can predict the all-cause mortality that you see in the black curve here. So essentially, the blue line is the prediction of mortality. And so if the blue line fits the, the black line, then that is strongly suggestive in this case that measles is, is uh, causal in all-cause mortality. So again, you don't have to be a statistician to see just how tightly these confidence bands and the blue curve 
practically mirror the all-cause mortality in the population. And if you actually take into account what is the variation that's explained by, that, uh, by measles in terms of the amount of mortality, it's actually airing somewhere between 30 and 50% of all of the, the mortality numerically that was occurring in the population can be explained by measles incidence data alone. So this is just one data set, but it was a pretty striking data set, but we of course needed to look at some others. So I, I won't go into detail about this, but this is just US data. You can see the vaccine was introduced and we saw these peaks and, and, and bumps of measles uh, really reduced after, after the vaccine was introduced. And this is a, a now famous plot that was in Wall Street Journal from a, a data set, a, a now famous data set, but essentially you see each state along the X, uh, along the Y axis and then each year in the columns, and when measles uh, vaccine is introduced, this heat map really becomes very light, and the heat map reflects measles incidence from year to year. So I'll display this same video, but for an entirely distinct data set uh, from the US. And so we see something really very, very similar. And again, it was about uh, 27 or 30 months here was the average duration that we had to accumulate cases over. And again, you see this very, very tight fit and in in reflected here in the blue line really matching the all-cause mortality in the population. So we've now done this for a number of different countries in, in China and in Iceland and Brazil and Denmark and really everywhere where we've been able to get the correct data, we see a very similar pattern. So we, we wanted to then, so that was all observational data, but it did suggest that there's around a two to three year, 27 to 30 month lag on average where people would, where there's an increased risk of mortality post measles. So we wanted to look at that more in case reports and actually get at individuals. Uh, so we went to the UK thin database, which is about 50% of the gen general practitioners in the UK. And the, the I, I wouldn't say this is the most robust evidence. Um, there's some methodological not problems, but just areas where we really can't be sure um, that we're getting rid of all of the bias in the, in the data set. Um, but essentially, we see here that there's, uh, we followed around 2,000 kids um, through a chart review using the thin data set. They, the blue line represents children who have measles, and the red line is children who are controls. We see this very strong, and then we measured clinical consultations and antibiotic usage, because mortality in this era is really not a good metric for actually um, for, for evaluating effects uh, in children. It's really a, a rare event. So clinical consultations and antibiotic usage were, were two metrics that would give us some understanding of whether kids were getting sick uh, at higher rates. And so after they get measles, for, for about six months or so, you see a big peak in clinical consultations and in antibiotic usage. And that type of effect has actually been known for quite a long time. The acute effects of measles, uh, the acute immuno, true immunosuppressive effects that last for a month or so have been well described for many, many decades. Uh, but what we were interested to look at is what happened afterwards. And for about five years uh, after these kids got measles, they continued to have extra uh, uh, visits to their physicians and extra usage of antibiotics, which was important because these kids were, are, because they're choosing not to vaccinate, that it creates a, a biased uh, population that we're looking at. These are unvaccinated children who are getting measles. Um, but if anything, the, the bias tends to go in the opposite direction in terms of antibiotic usage. They're less likely to want to, to see their physicians and, and put antibiotics into their children. So, but measles is an acute infection. So how is this 
how is this really occurring? And that's um, to, to understand that, this is the second half of what I'll talk about, you have to just understand a very little bit about, how, about measles biology. And this is a virus. So the measles virus is an aerosolized virus. And essentially, when a, when a child or, or anyone uh, who's susceptible inhales it into their lungs, you'll have dendritic cells <clears throat> which can pick up the virus and they bring it into the lymph system. But the receptor that measles uses is called CD150. And so this is really different. Flu, for example, uses receptors that allows it to bind to a whole assortment of different cells uh, of our respiratory tract. Measles doesn't have that luxury. It really has to use this one receptor, CD150, which is highly expressed on immune memory cells, lymphocytes. And so if the, when the dendritic cells pick up the, the measles virus, they usually shuttle it into the lymph, thinking that they're doing what they should be doing, which is bring, a, bring epitopes and antigens into uh, the lymph system to allow it to develop immune memory to it. Uh, in this case, measles hijacks the process. It binds to CD150, which is expressed on the surface of lymphocytes, and then it invades those cells, ultimately causing them to fuse together and, and die off. And uh, so the important thing here is just to know that that's, re that's really how measles is invading, and it's kind of shuttled into, uh, uh, in terms of replication inside the body, it really needs to replicate in lymphocytes. And so to give a nice picture of this, we, we make these viruses that express GFP. These are measles viruses, and we can infect macaques with them. And what we see is after, after a macaque gets, uh, gets uh, infected with measles, you see the B cell follicles, where the B cells develop and, and mature, they get completely hollowed out, which you can see by these light zones here. But what's really interesting is if you just take a, a broader look, at the, at the necropsy of these animals, and you ask, where is this measles virus going? Essentially, any place you see a green dot is a cell that's full, or a germinal center in this case, that's full of, of uh, virus. And so this is through, uh, this is through an, an inhalation route exposure to measles in these macaques. And about 10 days later, when we do necropsy, we see that just their, their entire gut lining, more or less anywhere in their body where you see lymphocytes, you'll see that a large fraction of them are infected with measles, and ultimately those cells will go on to die. And we see that this is ferrets. We can see um, what would, this would sort of be like Coplex spots in, in, in children. And this is usually what a clinician would see. So this is the red rash, but this is really uh, what's going on under the surface. So if we look at the, if we take sort of a step back and just model this as a as sort of a toy model, we say, okay, this is 100% this is of your immunological repertoire. All of the immune cells that are in your body can be represented by this axis right here. The blue ones are naive cells, so these are, these are naive B cells or T cells that are waiting to be, uh, to be uh, formed into plasma cells or, or more mature B cells. And then you have your memory repertoire here, which I'm just coloring in red. Uh, and when a measles, this is actual data though, uh, when, when the macaques get infected with measles, you see this big decline, uh, and this is really presented as lymphopenia in the, in the macaques. Uh, but then a couple of weeks later, you see this massive ex explosion and sort of uh, reproduction of B cells, and, and they end up filling in in the pool. But what it turns out is that it's not just a re-expansion of your previously existing repertoire. The vast majority of the cells that actually do re-expand into the pool are actually measles-specific cells. So that led us to, to ask the question at the time, well, what happens with this red compartment? Does it just redevelop on its own through some sort of homeostatic repopulation of the, the lymph pool? Or does it have to be re-stimulated? 
And that would be the, the that's the hypothesis is that you would have your antigenic specific, uh, antigen specific memory before measles. You get measles, you get this large lymphopenic uh, effect, uh, a robust sort of proliferation of measles specific cells. And then the question is, do you then have to get new exposures or new vaccines and start chipping away at this pool uh, to sort of increase the repertoire diversity of your immune response again? And if that's the case, could that explain uh, the, the long-term duration of immunological uh, uh, of susceptibility that we're seeing in these kids for a number of years after measles? So to look at this, we worked with Rick Deswart, who's a, a wonderful collaborator. He does uh, a lot of the measles work that we, the, those green uh, fluorescent uh, viruses are, are one of his developments. Uh, and he's, a, he's at Erasmus, and in the Netherlands, there's this, uh, there's this what's often referred to as the, the Dutch Bible Belt. It's a religious community that doesn't, uh, that largely doesn't vaccinate their children. Um, but they're an interesting group because despite having low vaccination rates, they're actually very willing to, um, to be involved in scientific endeavors and participate in science. And so during a measles outbreak in 2013, we went into the communities and, and essentially offered the, the parents vaccines for their children uh, they inevitably uh, did not uh, agree to give their kids vaccines, but they did agree to offer up some blood from their kids. And so we asked if we could take a specimen of blood before they got measles, and should they end up getting measles during this outbreak, could we come back and collect a, a, a sample a few months later? And so that's exactly what we did. And you can see here that the, this is, the darker the blue here is, the, is lower vaccination rates, and it maps very well onto the measles cases that occurred in the population during that year. And uh, so overall, we were able to get uh, around 77 complete groups of, uh, with a, a blood sample before and a blood sample after measles. And, uh, and, but then we needed to do something with that blood. And so at the time, that was 2013, we were thinking, well, we'll sequence the B cells, sequence the T cells, and, and get some diversity metrics to understand the repertoire diversity. But B cell and T cell sequencing, if you're not familiar, it's it's really terrific to understand sort of how B cells and T cells develop and understand sort of what directions they're going and the tools are getting better, but ultimately we're, we're still stuck in this land of, of dealing with diversity metrics more than really knowing exactly what those sequences necessarily are targeting. So we wanted a way, that would have been fine, but, but the, the, a couple weeks after that initial science paper came out in 2015, Steve Elledge at Harvard published VeerScan which was essentially uh, describing a new method to essentially build a whole library of little viral epitopes and be able to capture antibodies using this at, at very high throughput and low, and low cost. And so I figured I'd go um, try to develop that technology more with Steve for a few years uh, in order to answer this question. And so at the, at the time, the, the technology was not really quantitative uh, as much as we would have needed for the study. So um, I spent a few years working on it, but essentially what we do, just to explain it, we take all of the viral proteins that we can get our hands on from a computational perspective. So essentially we download the full genomes of around 400 different pathogens. We chop those genomes up into 56 amino acid bits computationally on the computer. We then get those 56 amino acid peptides synthesized for us, and we package them into phage. And phage you can think of as just these little things that do what we want. Um, and so they're little robots and they're viruses and they infect bacteria, but the real important thing about them is they're also antigen producers. 
So they can essentially, we can put one of these strands of DNA uh, into a phage, and then for the lifetime of that phage, it will just present that antigen that, that's encoded by the DNA on its surface. So we can do that a couple hundred thousand times to have this big library that represents essentially the full proteomes of all different viruses that could infect humans. And then we can take just a drop of somebody's blood, mix it with that phage, and ultimately you could think of each of these little viruses as their own little mini ELISA. And so we can essentially take one drop of blood or even less, it's about 0.2 microliters of blood, and mix it with a whole library of phage, and at the end of it, we get a readout for about 200,000 distinct antibodies uh, across every virus that's known to infect humans, plus now a number of bacteria and allergens. And we just keep adding to the libraries, which makes phage really nice to work with. So to give you a sense of what the data looks like, each column here is one child, and each row is one epitope or one peptide from a pathogen. So I'm only showing the peptides for which anyone developed an antibody to. Uh, so we have pneumo, rhino, RSV, and NRO. There's about 400 more pathogens in this list. Uh, if I were to present it all, it would be a very long list. Um, but what you can see is each, each child has different antibodies against the different pathogens. It's almost like a fingerprint or a barcode for those kids. And it turns out this is usually very, very stable. And so here what I'm doing, I'm just showing one person. This is just one individual. And now each column is one time point collected over a 10-year duration of time. And so what this is really showing is that the stability in the immune response is really extraordinarily um, stable. So over a 10-year period of time, you can take one monoclonal antibody, for example, in this case against EB, some EBV peptide, and you can actually monitor that. And that antibody against that one peptide will keep persisting for 10 years. And essentially what this is reflecting is the long-lived plasma cells sitting in our femurs and our bone marrow. And so this is really, in a way, kind of proving that long-lived long plasma cells are truly existing. Um, but we wanted to, to sort of leverage the stability that we would expect to occur in the antibody repertoire and essentially ask, after measles, do we see that, this, that, the, that the repertoire shifts sufficiently and we actually lose a lot of these peptides, that, uh, antibodies that we wouldn't anticipate losing? So shifting back to measles again, we were able to collect these uh, children before, blood from the kids before and after the measles epidemic. And then we had around 130 additional controls that each of the control groups, which you'll see, were slightly different, but you can just assume they were healthy individuals. Um, and if we just look, take a, the, a, the broadest strokes view of the, what this data looks like, we can just count up how many antibodies does a child have, or how many distinct epitopes on pathogens does a kid uh, recognize. And we can then ask, what's the change over time from time point one before measles to time point two after, or in the controls and not after anything. And we can see that in, amongst controls, you really see that there's very good stability. So the fraction is one. So essentially you have the same numbers of antibodies before and after at the two time points here. In the MMR vaccinated children, you see this increase in antibodies. This is not because MMR is somehow stimulating a humoral response and diversifying a repertoire. It's just because those kids were 15 months old and their immune repertoire is really developing quickly. So between the two time points, you have this rapid increase of antibodies in those children. But this was the, the most interesting group, these, these uh, seven to 12 year olds, which really should have uh, fractions of change that are, are really around one. After measles, you see that they lose anywhere from about 20% to 40% of their overall diversity mm -hmm. of antibodies in, in their blood. But 
it, it, what we were hoping to see and which we did see is that after measles, uh, we do see, despite most of the antibodies decreasing, we do see the measles-specific antibodies increasing. And so this is just showing the numbers of different antibodies that any one of these kids will form. And so you can see that after MMR, these really young kids actually form more antibodies than, uh, than after wild-type measles. And that's probably reflective of these kids being younger, having more space to diversify their antibody repertoire to an infection. And then in the controls, you really don't see a, a big change between the two time points. So this is what, if we just make a heat map of what some of this data looks like, this would be what a, a healthy community would look like this, where you see sort of a mix of blue and red. So if I just took any, any blood from anyone in this room uh, now and then maybe three months or a year or two years later, 90% of it will be pretty stable, but 10% will fluctuate up and down, and so you'll see some of, some of the children will have increases in their antibodies for a given pathogen. Some will have decreases, and you get this mixture. Of course, with the measles-infected children, you end up seeing this really dark blue, um, this uh, color that really dominates here. And that's just reflective of the fact that most of the antibodies in that population are just going down with, without being balanced by new antibodies. Uh, with the exception, of course, up here, these are measles-specific antibodies in this group. And then these are measles and rubella-specific antibodies in the MMR uh, vaccinated group. So those are good sanity checks to see that those are actually increasing despite reductions everywhere else. The Staph aureus in this group, I think, is very, very interesting. And that was the only pathogen that we didn't see a strong reduction for. And I think what we were actually seeing in that case, because Staph is colonizing a large fraction of these children, in the, in the highly immunosuppressive state of measles, they were probably passing the Staph aureus around to each other, and we're actually seeing the reacquisition of immunological memory rather than the prevention of those antibodies de being depleted. Uh, it was probably more likely that by the time we got back to the children, they had been able to develop some new antibodies against staph because of new acquisitions. So if we only focus on, not on the total numbers, but if we just say of those antibodies that were present at the first time point, how many of those antibodies persisted? Uh, at the second time point. So like I said, in, in controls, you see around 90% will persist, so you normally might lose around 10%. And now each column here is, uh, is one child, and each dot is representing the fraction of antibodies for a given pathogen in that child that persists. And what you can see is the, that uh, the controls are all between 95 and 85% uh, retention for any given pathogen on average. But after measles, these kids really have large depletions. And the 20% most affected kids here lost over half of their overall antibody repertoire that was pre-existing before measles. So if we, if we then say, okay, what about those antibodies that didn't get completely depleted, where we were still able to detect in a binary signal that the antibody was there, what about the titers of those antibodies? Would they have been depleted uh, even if the full signal was not gone? And we actually see that. So here these are healthy people. And we say that the antibodies that you pick up before and after, you'll see, you'll see some balanced changes in terms of the titers of each of those antibodies. Uh, but in these measles-infected kids, you really see that the majority of antibodies that do persist have about a 50% reduction in their antibody titer post-measles. Uh, but I want you just to recall that there's also these in interesting dots that where we actually saw pretty significant increases in the antibody titer. And there's actually a big... There's a lot of gray points which aren't showing up too well here. Um, the, the ones that I'm coloring are those that were significantly enriched or depleted. So, the, so we see that there were quite a few that were really significantly enriched, and, and there's an explanation for that.
But just to get one other data set that wasn't these kids, uh, we've infected macaques. This is work with Diane Griffin at Hopkins. And uh, we, we infected macaques and then followed them up five months later and ultimately saw very similar effects where the macaques in this case lost around 50% of their overall pre-existing antibody repertoire after measles with really no signs of, we have actual time series for those. And you see the reduction at, at around one or two months and there's really no sign of the, of the measles antibody or of the uh, repertoire sort of rebounding and coming back up on its own. So we believe that this might be a permanent effect, which really is driven by the fact that long-lived plasma cells in the bone marrow secreting most of these antibodies are terminally differentiated and they have no real mechanism to repopulate after they've been, uh, after they've been lost if their precursor cells don't exist anymore. So getting back to this question, does memory return? Do you kind of build it back up and chip away at it? If we actually ask, well, I, I mentioned that these antibodies were enriched. If we then say amongst those children with enriched antibodies, if we break it down by pathogen, uh, on the one hand, you might think, okay, maybe these are just enriched because they were able to somehow escape the wrath of measles. But instead, when we actually plot out each of these points, which represent uh, a child, and, and um, some of them represent the same child, uh, and we plot it out and we ask, where do they live? We see that all of the children who had increases in their, in, in this case, influenza titers, were siblings or lived right next door to each other. And so we believe that this isn't somehow in an individual level, these plasma cells being able to escape measles, but it was rather that we were identifying a new cluster or a new outbreak of influenza, and again, the reacquisition of immunological memory in these groups of kids in this particular school system, for example. Another example is adenovirus. We saw this very strong increase in adenovirus uh, antibody titers after, after measles, which we initially thought was noise. But when we actually uh, plotted it out, we see that the vast majority of children who had increases in their adenovirus antibody titers were actually siblings in circle. If they're circled by a dotted line here, that means they're siblings uh, or they lived very close to each other. So we, we believe that this, wasn't, um, that this wasn't a fluke, and this was really just seeing that children can begin reacquiring immune memory pretty quickly within a few months after measles. But then we also saw that children who, that, that the, the whole question is, does this carry risk? And we saw that when children reacquired, uh, in this case, pneumococcal antibodies, amongst those children who did reacquire their pneumococcal antibodies, they also had an increased risk of both otitis media and, and pneumococcal pneumonia. So getting these reacquisition events, although it's good to rebuild your immune response, it comes with risk. And in particular, if you're getting exposed to pathogens without a durable humoral response because it's been depleted by measles, then you're going to see excess risk in the population. That kind of drives the whole hypothesis here. But it also suggests that we might, during, during, the, uh, during the response to measles outbreaks, we might want to consider adding routine childhood vaccinations into the response. And sure, maybe that won't work for anti-vaccine people or people who are unlikely to vaccinate. But the vast majority of measles, which is still about 7 million cases every year, are in places where people would like to get vaccinated. They just don't have them available. So when resources are mobilized, we might want to consider revaccinating and adding childhood routine vaccines to the mobilization of resources. So just to conclude, I think that the immunological data, which we now have, uh, have put together, really does uh, work well to try to explain these very interesting observations that have been made, not just by us with, in 2015, but really go back quite a few years where these observations of all-cause childhood mortality reducing after measles vaccine introductions has really been 
uh, a, a key thing. And I think overall, the, this 50% estimate, we continue to see that, the, that it's somewhere between 30 and 50% in all of these countries, which really drives the, the message if, if a country is really thinking about should we continue aiming for measles elimination in our country, I think that really measles vaccine is probably one of the best buys that, that can be, can be uh, had for, uh, for the vaccination program. So just um, some of the folks who were really involved with this, Brian Grenfell and Jess Metcalf at Princeton for a lot of the math modeling work, Steve Elledge and two of his PhD students helped for uh, some of the, the uh, VR scan work and the antibody displays, and then uh, Rick Desward and Paul Dupre, who's now at Pitt, uh, for some of the macaque work, and Diane also helped with the macaque work. So I'll take any questions. Sorry, I didn't explain that well. So measles is particularly cytotoxic to long-lived plasma cells. And uh, I unfortunately, I probably have it in one of the slides after this, but uh, long-lived plasma cells have a particularly high expression of CD150. So when measles actually gets into the, into the body and moves through the, throughout the lymph, it also gets into the bone marrow and can really go after the long-lived plasma cells at a pretty high rate. So it actually is directly targeting them and killing them off rather than some nonspecific sort of reduction in these long-lived plasma cells. And then, as a follow-up, were there particular pathogens where the uh, plasma cell immunity is particularly susceptible to the virus? Or is it yeah. just a, a stoichiometry kind of effect? So we think, we haven't seen any signals that it's particularly more, uh, that the signal is much stronger for any given pathogen. And part of that might be that any, once a plasma cell becomes a plasma cell, you wouldn't expect that it knows what antigen it's actually targeting. We don't know that for sure, but we haven't seen any, any clear signal that there's actually sort of some, some difference where the, the antibodies that are depleted for a given pathogen are more so than others, with the exception of when we, we see a rebound of, of the antibodies. So, um, but that's something we're trying to look at now to see if there's actually any specific pathogen signals. At the population level, what we see in terms of excess mortality that occurs after measles, though, you see that it, that measles sort of amplifies or puts a magnifying glass on the baseline uh, pathogens that are circulating uh, in the population. So, for example, and if you go to South America and you look at measles outbreaks that occurred there, and what was the excess mortality occurring in Brazil or in other in other countries, you see it was largely diarrheal diseases and dysentery, which were coded for that were in excess post measles. Whereas in Europe, you saw a lot more pneumonia and respiratory diseases. So it seems to be more amplifying what's, what's in the background of the population. Mm -hmm. On the uh, sociologic level, have you investigated whether sharing this, this data conceptually <laughs> has any impact on opinions towards vaccinations and a, and a vaccination adverse community? Um, so we shared the data back with the community we got the um, samples from, and they were appreciative, but they said, this is really, really interesting. We're still not going to vaccinate our kids. Um, 
they are not uh, dogmatic about, they're not vaccinating because they've been given misinformation. I mean, maybe religiously they've been given, you know, misinformation, if you can label it that. But, um, but in the U.S., and I've, this work kind of throws me into the lion's den with the anti-vaccine movement a lot, you see a gradient. I thought that it would probably be very useful to people, and I think people who are on the fence, it's really helpful to give them, to, to tell them, look, it, it, this isn't even about the vaccine. This is just about the virus, why you should really keep the virus at bay and not let your kid, you know, if your kid ends up getting this, then you're kind of putting them in a situation where you have to always be looking over their shoulder for years, potentially, for the next pathogen coming in that they should have already been immune to. So I think it helps with some of them, but for the real extreme people, I'm just a pharma shell to them. You know, the, this is all, I try to tell them I'm not even evaluating vaccines here. You know, this is all, this is pre-vaccine era data. And, um, but the, the way that information spreads, um, you know, it's, uh, the, it's, it's really, it's, it's frustrating, but, you know, it's, it's just astounding how the data doesn't, doesn't drive them emotion, you know, playing to their emotions and saying your kid is going to be at risk doesn't drive them. They just really turn and they say, well, you're just, you know, you're at Harvard. Harvard is corrupt and, you know, all, all these things, in which, you know, if you've read the news lately. Um, but so I don't know what the solution is there. I was hoping that it would have maybe more of an impact. Um, I think for some it does, but for others it just really makes them dig in even more and say, this is all a lie. You're just, and I've pointed out to them, for example, like there's no logic. I say this data is all, it's been sitting there for years online. You can go and re redo the analyses yourselves. I'm not making it up. And doesn't move them. So I, I don't know. It's a hard thing. Did you have a? Mine was the same. Oh, OK. Yeah. Get the word out to people to see the science behind it. I mean, journalists have done a pretty good job at getting the word out, I think. It's, it was spread very widely, I think. Um, so for example, I'm going down to Brooklyn to talk to the rabbis and um, and community health workers and the families there. And I think I, I try to appeal to personal individuals more. And I think that maybe maybe that will be one route rather than, I mean, public health messaging just isn't doing it, you know, for maybe for some. But um, it's going to be, uh, you know, it's easy to make vaccines now. It's really difficult to get people who don't want them to take them. Um, I don't have a good solution. First of all, that was incredible work and the way that you presented it. Thank you. <laughs> is there teleologically a reason that measles doing this makes sense for the virus? Yeah, so I think the virus has, viruses have all different ways to, um, to evade immunity. One of those ways would be to go and uh, it's a fusion, it's a virus that causes these lymphocytes to fuse. So within an individual anyway, if it can get into the, cell, the very cells that, it's, that are supposed to be developing responses against it, it can buy itself some time. And that's exactly what we see. It takes around 10 days before you start to really see a proliferation of cells that are directly targeting measles. But in that amount of time, it's already been able to sort of invade through this Trojan horse mechanism and get and, and replicate itself to huge, huge numbers so that then it can just escape. So I think that's one way if it can actually get inside of the immune cells and, and replicate, then it's, it, it doesn't have to worry about evading even the antibodies that are being produced against it for quite a while. Um, yeah, I think they're exactly. 
Well, so the, <laughs> I think it's I think it's unintentional, um, but I think viruses have different ways to evade immunity. So, for example, we're studying using these same sorts of tools. Where we're studying now, one of the most interesting things that has come out of this work um, has been that viruses that form really, really um, good, sterilizing, robust immunity tend to elicit very few antibodies in terms of the diversity of antibodies that are elicited. It's a very narrow set of antibodies that are developed against measles or rubella or mumps. And then if you look at a kid's first rhinovirus infection, though, for example, you'll get like 200 or 300 distinct antibodies being developed, which is around an order of magnitude more than for measles. And so I think that viruses, depending on how well they're able to evade in the early phase, they might have different mechanisms for evading. So in that case of rhinovirus, maybe they're forming all these different knobs and bells and whistles on their surface so that the antibodies will end up going after those. And they're actually not, and if the antibody binds, it's not going to be neutralizing, for example. But measles, because it has this ability to just get under the surface, if you will, it doesn't need to have that sort of thing and waste the energy uh, developing all these extra antigens and epitopes. And so it can be, it's an extraordinarily transmissible pathogen and its fitness inside the host is really remarkable in terms of how quickly it can replicate. So. Um, I think it's a bystander effect that it's actually killing our immune system off. I actually have a flip question to that, which is, it seems like the, the very strong evolutionaries are, are what, and my, my immunology is a little rusty, so in terms of the CD150, why does that persist in its, in its availability to Yeah, so measles really only jumped into humans around 1,000 years ago. So it hasn't had a huge number of generations to potentially have. I agree, though. I mean, with 30 or 40% mortality, it's an extraordinarily strong uh, evolutionary bottleneck, potentially. Um, so whether or not we would necessarily uh, uh, end up being able to downregulate CD150 over time, maybe we already have and don't know it. Um, uh, but it's a great question, you know, would it be, why, why keep persisting? I think one of the important things is, unlike TB, this virus is fairly new to humans. It's not been a huge number of generations. Um, and uh, so that's, but, uh, but yeah, I think it's a, it's a good question to be asking for sure. Yeah. Over and above the super cool measles stuff, can you, can you help our lay audience think about, like, this little tool you guys have been working on that gives us library of antibodies, which yeah. is unbelievable. Uh, ushering <laughs> in a new world of personalized medicine where we can really think, I mean, not just viral antigens, it mm -hmm. seems like it opens up all kinds of stuff. What's be thinking about? Yeah, we have the human genome encoded to look for autoantibodies, for example, and we have lots of bacteria and all, all different things. The antibody pool, I mean, it's kind of like this uh, automatically recording record of our of our lifetime history of walking around this earth. And, um, and so I think it can be used for lots and lots of different things. We're using it, the antibody repertoire now, to identify individuals and, and use it to sort of be able to help do drug trials where we need to really be able to know that the samples that we're getting are really from, coming from the same individual if they're mailing them in, for example. Um, and we work with these microneedle patches that allow them to take blood in their home and then send it in to us. And, um, so I think there's lots of uses for the antibody repertoire. This is just one example where um, 
because of the, this is all from 0.2 microliters of serum, we're able to get all of this data. And so here what I'm showing you are, are birth cohorts. So this is the easiest one to look at because it's big. Um, this is day zero of life. So you see all the maternal antibodies for rubella or measles here. And, uh, and then you see in this population, they get vaccinated and, uh, and ultimately some of those antibodies will dwindle over time. But with the same data, if we can link it all up between the samples, we really can see time courses and the antibodies for all of these kids. And the y-axis here is the number of distinct antibodies. So there's actually another dimension that I'm not showing, which is for each of those antibodies that uh, for a given child, we also have a titer. So the resolution of, of the antibody pool is absolutely making it, I think it can do everything from really making surveillance. We can easily um, encode, for example, this novel coronavirus. We can put it into the phage within a couple of weeks. And we can even just start making libraries of pathogens that don't exist right now. And it, granted, these aren't real pathogens. These are 56 MERS of what would be a potential pathogen. So we're not creating, you know, highly pathogenic viruses or something. Um, and, uh, and so I think that there's lots and lots of tools that we can use the, you know, now that we can probe the antibody repertoire so deeply. Yeah. This may sound a little crazy, but for those of us who are in the pre um, vaccination, when I remember when I was a child, if somebody had measles, parents would put us all together so we would get the disease mm -hmm. and get immunity. Yeah. Chickenpox, measles, I believe I had measles. Mm -hmm. So is that not a good thing to do, but we could stimulate our, our immunity? But we would have for your dad yeah. that we would be having people looking behind our shoulder. Yeah. So I think in particular the notion of pox parties, you know, it's, um, is it a good idea? Is it, I mean, in an era when you were inevitably going to get measles either way, you know, in the U.S. we have so a lot of the mortalities associated with measles also related to vitamin A deficiency, and there's some nice mechanisms for why that is. So people, the mortality rate wasn't huge, but it turns out that it was actually around one in a thousand, which isn't nothing for an infection that's, you know, infecting everyone. Whether or not a pox party, I think the only reason why that is a really bad idea, <laughs> I mean, today it's a bad idea because we know how to prevent measles, but in an era when you were gonna get it either way, I think that it, it does make sense, except that you really run the risk, let's say you had a pox party of a whole city, which is an outbreak, you run the risk of actually reducing herd immunity to all these other pathogens. So it's not the individual level immunity, but if you do it at the same time for all these kids, then you might actually start degrading herd immunity to other pathogens that might exist naturally. And so I think that that's one of the, the big concerns there. Um, today, I certainly would, wouldn't advocate anyone doing that, but, um, but it was actually one of, the, one of the major things that happened, for example, to really ignite the outbreak in Brooklyn this year was a pox party, and, um, which is different than what you're asking about. But I would say it's, it might not be a great idea to do it. <laughs> sure. Um, I was really intrigued by your mention of the potential for revaccinating um, following the measles uh, outbreak. And I'm thinking of communities where I might work in, in low middle income countries, refugee camps where there might be a measles outbreak, and I know that they're pretty good at the situations for mobilizing forces to get measles vaccines, and usually it's just measles, not even right. um, throughout the, the um, community and, and vaccinate the susceptibles. 
I'm curious if your proposal for maybe we actually need to do a more comprehensive revaccination campaign is taking any traction with WHO or others who might respond to use um, of that phrase. Yeah, I was in Geneva recently talking to them about it. Um, so after the, I, I went there in 2016 after the first uh, paper, and there was a flurry of interest in that. And then ultimately everyone got cold feet and said, well, we need real immunological evidence for this. So I got the Im immunological evidence, and, um, and I think it's being taken much more seriously this time around. Whether it will actually move to actually become a recommendation, I don't really have, I, I think it should be, frankly. I don't see why not, and I think a lot of the people who know the data say the exact same, but then when it comes to potentially adding extra burden, I think they see it as you know, the, the good being, the perfect being the, the enemy of the good. And um, so I think that there's concern about making this extra resource a, a formal recommendation, so. Well, thank you for a really elegant presentation.